This is a Daily Wildcat production. Wildcat crime listeners should be aware that this episode contains descriptions of murder, death, and intimate partner abuse, both physical and psychological, and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Listeners, and welcome to another episode of Wildcat Crime, the monthly podcast dedicated to taking a closer look at some of the most infamous crimes to occur at the University of Arizona and within the Wildcat community. Brought to you by the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio. My name is Vanessa Ontiveros, and I'll be your host. Back in December, for episode three of this show, I covered the life of Jay Dobbins, an ATF agent who went undercover in the Hells Angels biker gang and helped bring some of them to justice. His life is actually a lot more complex than that, and I encourage you to go listen to the episode if you haven't already. Because in that episode, I discussed what it means to be a hero. But in this episode, I'll be talking about something slightly different. Tony Soprano, Walter White, Don Draper, the leading men of some of the new golden age of television's top shows are also some of pop culture's most famous anti-heroes. If the ratings, and Emmy Awards, are any indication, we love to watch good people go bad when the cards were stacked against them and it was time to take matters into their own hands. And while that's all fine and good for a TV show, When the cameras stop rolling and real human lives come into play, well, what then? Does a person become a hero? Or something else? Something on the opposite end of the spectrum. Today, I want to know, what does it mean to be a villain? In the interest of not misleading you, my lovely listeners, I will state at the top of this show that I don't believe in evil people. One thing that really bugs me about true crime is when the people who do awful, awful things are called monsters. I'm not trying to say that murderers are good people, but they are people. Part of my fascination with true crime comes from the idea that people, all people, have the capacity to do horrible deeds. That's always interested me. How good humanity can be. And how vile. How that all exists within one species, within one person. Louise Foker Marshall was, undeniably, a person who did good in the world. She was the first female professor at the University of Arizona. She was a real estate mogul who set up a charitable organization, the Marshall Foundation, that exists to this day. In fact, the Marshall Building on campus is named after her. She also shot her husband to death in 1931. But the story, like Louise herself, is more complicated than that. So let's get into it, shall we? The story of Louise Foker Marshall. (laughs) 
begin, I just want to say that I got most of this information about Louise's life from the Marshall Foundation's website and the UA Library's special collection. There is an entire collection on Louise Foker Marshall and her husband, Tom Marshall, though, from what I saw, the lion's share of the collection was devoted to Louise. The collection is available to be seen by the public for free, and the workers there were all tremendously willing to help me in my research, and I owe them a debt of gratitude. Louise was born Louise Henriette Foker in 1864 to a German immigrant family living in Boston. The exact date of her birth is unknown. Her family was wealthy, and would only grow wealthier after her father developed the formula for patent leather, according to the Marshall Foundation. Not much is certain about Louise's childhood. The Marshall Foundation's biography of her says that she was a more reserved child, formal as would befit her wealthy upbringing in the Victorian era. We do know that she traveled a lot in her education, to France, Italy, and Sweden. She moved around quite a bit, actually, mostly to try to find a climate better suited to her poor health. She seemed to prefer warm locations. She moved to El Paso, Texas, which at the time would have had a population of around 10,000 people, or less than one-third of UA's current undergraduate population, according to TexasAlmanac.com. She then went to Mexico City. In 1890, she bucked the trend of living in warm climates to move to Denver, Colorado, and attend the University of Denver. While there, she earned two degrees, including one in modern languages, which would serve her well later on. However, as a student, her health worsened. She fell ill with tuberculosis and also experienced problems with her heart. After she finished her undergraduate studies, she moved to Tucson in 1898. The climate was warmer and the elevation was lower. That same year, she would continue her studies, this time as a graduate student at the University of Arizona, which had only been around for less than 15 years at the time. Louise must have shown something very special, because by the next year, a professor of hers who was retiring recommended that his pupil fill the role. And in the year 1900, at the turn of the century, Louise Foker Marshall became the first female professor at the University of Arizona. She was 36 years old at the time. It is important to note that Louise likely was not the first female faculty member at the UA. And though many sources name her as such, she may or may not have been the first female professor at the school. According to author and historian Jan Clear, a woman named Mary Aguirre was named the head of the Spanish department in 1895. The UA Women's Plaza of Honor website confirms this, adding that she also led the English history department. From what I can tell, Mary was one of the first women at UA in a notable position of power, but Louise was likely the first one in the specific role of professor. Louise taught English, French, Latin, and Spanish. She also taught botany. By 1901, she was head of the Ancient and Modern Languages Department. I told you it would serve her well. But by 1903, she retired from teaching. She had her sights set on a new career. At the time of Louise's appointment, UA was very, very small. Less than 150 students were enrolled, which is smaller than some gen ed courses now. There were only about 20 faculty members. But Louise was smart, remember? 
she seemed to know that Tucson would not stay a tiny mining town forever. And though the university area was not near Tucson's downtown, she recognized the potential it still had. She started buying up land near the university for low rates, what would likely be painfully low to anyone who now pays rent to live near campus, but I digress. Louise had started buying land when she was still teaching, but after her early retirement in 1903, she put all her energy into her real estate business. She used the money she had inherited from her parents to buy what is now known as Main Gate Square, right at the western entrance of campus. It would become the first major shopping area in Tucson, outside the downtown area. The Marshall Foundation still owns most of that land today. I think that's part of the reason the UA named the Marshall Building after her. That's not to say that Louise did not have a strong educational and philanthropic impact on the university, but if you want to have your name on a building, even if you do shoot someone, it helps to be the founder of the company that owns the land that said building stands on, as well as what has to be some of the most valuable commercial property in the city now. Currently, the building houses the School of Journalism, the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, the Arizona Center for Judaic Studies, and the Racetrack Program, along with several other establishments. And a Panera Bread, but that's just a bonus. I wanted to know how much the people who spend a lot of time in the Marshall Building knew about the building and the woman it was named after. So I asked some of my classmates and co-workers. Most of them are students in the School of Journalism, but some are film and television students as well. Everyone knew what the building was called. The Marshall Building, I know there's a name for it, like Louis, Louise something, but not yeah. fully sure. It's housed in the Marshall Building. We are in Marshall Building. It is in the Marshall Building. We are housed in the Marshall Building. In the Marshall Building? Yes. Yes. It is in the Marshall Building. It's housed in the Marshall Building on uh, Park Avenue. Marshall. Oh, God. But when I asked if they knew who the building was named after, many did not know anything about Louise. Some didn't even know her name or that she was a she. Marshall whatever his name is. Yes, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> I believe it's Lois A. Marshall. Maybe not. It's named after uh, Miss Marshall. I don't remember the name of the guy who it's named after. Uh, I would assume the guy's name is Marshall. Marshall Mathers? I have no idea. They knew even less about who she was or what she had done in order to warrant having a building named after her. Um, was she a journalist? She, uh, she had some, some big things on campus back in like the, the 50s or like before that maybe. Well, the Marshall Building has journalism and film and maybe some other things, so someone that was good at journalism or film. Um, she probably, you know, she probably was an outstanding woman that founded something or that maybe donated some money or did something, you know, to rise above the men. Um, she probably did, uh, probably want to pull a surprise if it's a J-School building. Oh, wait, it's not just journalism. Oh, crap. Um, I don't know. What did she do? Well, she could have murdered somebody. I know your podcast is about, like, crime and murder and stuff, so she could have murdered somebody if she has a villain name after her. I'm doing deductive reason in journalism for the viewers. Um, I'm gonna say she did a really... Maybe she just had a lot of money. I don't know. Except for one student. She murdered somebody, I'm pretty sure. I think that's actually one of like her 
main characteristics or anything? I learned about Ooh. that um, my freshman year on a tour of my brother. My brother took me. And he's not even, he's a criminal justice student, so that's why. 1903 was a big year for Louise because it was the year Louise retired from teaching in order to pursue her real estate business. But it was also a big year because 1903 was when she first began a relationship with the man who would become her husband, Mr. Thomas K. Marshall. She had met him before this. He was a student of hers. I don't know much about his early life, though I do know that he lived on a farm growing up and then worked in the mining camps near Tucson later on. But in 1903, Louise hired him to do maintenance on her rental properties. I couldn't find much about their courtship. On Wednesday, August 24, 1904, Louise and Thomas were married in El Paso, Texas. According to the Marshall Foundation website, Louise wanted a quieter, out-of-town wedding. Compared to what was written about their later marriage, the early part of Louise and Tom's marriage doesn't have much detail, particularly the years from 1904 to 1929. Some have written that they seemed happy. Later writings from Louise seem to reveal that she included her husband in on her business dealings. Let's remember, this was the early 20th century. For much of their marriage, women didn't even have the right to vote in federal elections. Arizona didn't become a state until 1912, and its original constitution did not include women's suffrage in it. Male Arizonans voted to grant women the right to vote in November 12th of that same year. So Louise's work as a businesswoman, particularly at such a high level, was not necessarily common for the time. However, according to Louise, Tom did not really have a head for business. We know this because dozens of original written works from Louise are housed in the UA Special Collections. In box number five of the collection, there were several long writings by Louise. They were undated, but my guess would be that they are from 1931 or 1932, after the murder and the trial. They give us insight into Louise's experience, and they're a valuable primary source. However, it should be noted that only Louise's account survives. Almost everything in the collection was either from her or about her, with very few writings from Tom. So keep in mind that this is one side of the story. Tom wanted to be involved in the business, so she let him. Part of the issue, though, was that he seemed to want to be able to do it all himself. She wrote, quote, Mr. Marshall has no natural ability for business, nor did he ever acquire it, nor had he good business judgment. After his marriage, more and more, he felt that a man of means should not do work, but be an executive. However, during the last few years, he had realized that he had to know how to do things before he could direct others. End quote. She wrote about several bad business decisions of his, Indeed, since his death, no one seems to have written about any good business decisions of his. Most records focus on Louise's accomplishments. If anyone knows about Louise's accomplishments, it's Jane McCollum, general manager of the Marshall Foundation. I spoke with her for this show to try to get a better understanding of Louise's life and legacy. Here's what she had to say about Louise's life during this gray period. Well, the Marshall Foundation was established by Louise Marshall um, in 1930. The primary source of her uh, cash with which she 
Mary and Louise's mother said it, it was for the express purpose of helping those less fortunate in our community. So today, the Marshall Foundation has supported, has changed a, a little bit. We're looking at the less fortunate part and dealing with social services, educating children, feeding the hungry, helping older people who are poor. And so a lot of our emphasis is on education and education for um, students who maybe are first-generation people going to college. There are people who live in underserved areas of Tucson. Right now, it's kind of a wide scope, but it's primarily early childhood development and education. We give approximately $500,000 to Arizona students to attend the University of Arizona in scholarship every year. I'll be talking about the Marshall Foundation more in detail later on in the show when I discuss Louise's legacy. But for now... Know that it remains as essentially the cornerstone of her business and philanthropic ventures. As a woman of some means, Louise was apt to hire help. One of the people she hired was a woman by the name of Mrs. Harriet Seymour. I couldn't seem to track down the exact year, but I have reason to believe it was 1923 when she hired her, based off later writings by Louise. Harriet worked for the Marshalls as a housemaid, Louise couldn't have known it at the time, but the hiring of Harriet would be a turning point in her life. Harriet moved in with the Marshalls in 1926, after the death of her husband the year before. This was when Louise began noticing stranger and stranger things about her husband and her housekeeper. He started to go out every night after 1923, and became annoyed when Louise asked where he was. According to Louise's later writings, Tom soon became rather obsessed with his appearance. He groomed himself in a way he rarely had before. He also seemed to be reading less and less, occupying his mind with other things. Louise wrote, quote, In former years he delighted in reading, especially the magazines, of which we always had a great number. One by one he ordered me to discontinue them, and for the last years took only the literary digest. End quote. Louise felt that her husband was, essentially, becoming dumb, something she several times called Harriet, though there is really no way for us to accurately know the intellectual capacities of a long-dead housekeeper. Either way, Louise wrote, quote, Oftentimes an imbecile expression would come on to his face for a few moments, especially after he had been talking to her, or was looking in the mirror, or when he had come from the bathroom, or when he would be sitting, thinking. End quote. Louise also noticed a change in dress in the two. He began to wear loose Palm Beach suits. She donned morning dresses that could be easily opened from the front. She recalled one time Harriet showed her a new dress she had made. It was a wraparound dress. It was open in the front, down to the waistline, like a very deep v-neck. The skirt was short, with a slit in it that revealed Harriet's whoopee shorts. Harriet's stockings were rolled down, exposing her legs. The dress, Louise concluded, was an invitation, 
and a rather obvious one at that. But not for her. Harriet Seymour and Tom Marshall were having an affair. By 1930, it had been going on for seven years, since the very beginning of Harriet's time with the Marshalls. There had been signs for years, but Louise confronted Tom about it on October 20th, 1930, and things seemed to explode. After that, Tom and Harriet seemed to take every opportunity to make their dalliance obvious, Louise felt. It could not be helped by the fact that Louise did not fire Harriet. Several times she asked Harriet to quit, but Harriet refused to do so. She apparently threatened Louise, saying that if Louise was to fire her, she would stay in the neighborhood and make sure everyone knew what was going on, and then Louise would really have a problem. Eventually she did leave. Louise wrote, quote, The morning she left, she said to me, I wanted to throw myself out of the window last night and end it all. I thought, innocent housemaids do not say things like that when they are discharged. End quote. To make matters worse, Tom fiercely refused a divorce. He told her there was never any way he was going to let her divorce him. And why should he? The young man from the mining camps was living large with one of the most prominent women in town and getting everything he seemed to want on the side. And there was really nothing Louise could do about that. It was 1930. Not only was it very difficult to get a divorce without direct proof of adultery, which Tom and Harriet were very careful to make sure no one had, but most of the business was in Tom's name because he was a man. He was even the original president of the Marshall Foundation. Louise was the treasurer. If she were to somehow leave him, she'd also leave the business and fortune she'd worked so hard to accumulate. And to make matters even worse, Louise had fallen ill. Louise had always been a sickly woman, but in the past year, it seemed to have gotten worse. She wrote that she could hardly stand up most of the time and often needed to lie down. At some points, she was essentially paralyzed. She'd always been a well-read woman, but there were times when her eyesight had mysteriously gotten so bad she could no longer read. She was often in great pain, and the whole thing was taking a massive toll on her mentally, which we will discuss in greater detail later on in the show. On occasion, Louise would put down an empty cup, after drinking its contents, and notice a crystal-like substance coating the bottom. In 1931, Louise consulted a doctor friend of hers and sent samples to his lab. He revealed that she was suffering from a severe case of arsenic poisoning. She showed Tom the results, and he said very little about it. Louise then wrote, quote, On Sunday the 19th, the flare-up came and my stomach was bleeding badly. And then I realized that Mr. Marshall this time alone was attempting to poison me. End quote. You see, Louise had deduced that Harriet Seymour had likely been behind the initial poisonings. After all, she was the one who handled Louise's food and drink. But after she was let go, there was no one it could have been other than Tom. But Louise was too ill to really do anything about it so Tom kept poisoning her in larger and larger doses, it seemed. 
It should be noted that, as far as I can tell, Harriet and Tom were never conclusively found to have been behind the poisonings. Though there is certainly strong circumstantial evidence, neither were either investigated or charged. Harriet, because she had moved out of the house, and Tom, because of what happened next. Things were tense in the Marshall household in the days leading up to April 27, 1931. Louise had been having trouble sleeping due to the stress of her marriage falling apart and the poison eating away at her. The whole situation gnawing at her until she could take it no more. She wrote, quote, I fell asleep after midnight for a little while, but woke up by one o'clock. My first thought was, I am still alive, but this would be my last day. Will it all be over by morning? It was more than I could stand. I was losing my mind. The next thing I know, I was standing at his side, and I had shot him. He had jumped up trying to run after me, and I shot him several times. I then ran into the yard. End quote. Louise Foker Marshall shot her husband, Tom, five times that day. According to the testimony of Natty Edwards, the new housemaid for the Marshalls, who was living in the home at the time, after the shots rang out, there was hollering and moaning. Natty went downstairs to see what was going on and found Louise at the back door, asking to be let in. Louise then told her, I shot Mr. Marshall, and I couldn't help it. While they were waiting for the police, Louise told Natty about the affair between Tom and Harriet and about the poisonings. Tom Marshall was initially treated for his three bullet wounds in Tucson, but was later transferred to a Los Angeles hospital. There, he died three weeks later due to an infection caused by a surgery to remove the final bullet. Louise was charged with first-degree murder. The story was huge. This local professor, philanthropist, real estate mogul shot her husband to death for cheating on her. Soap operas had not been invented yet, but this could have easily been a plot line. Several of my classmates seemed to think so. Here are some of their reactions when I told them that Louise Foker Marshall was the first female professor at UA, a real estate mogul, and a philanthropist. That's really, I mean, that's not surprising at all. It, it sounds like she would be named after a building. It's kind of surprising, but I know that there's more than one program in this building. I'm a film and television minor, and that's also in the Marshall Building. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. It's just a building. Kind of surprised, but intrigued. I'm, uh, you know, I'm all for the uh, the movement for the the women's movement. So I'm very I'm very glad to see that uh, Mrs. Marshall was doing big things back in the day. Um, I think it's it's an honor to be in the building that she's named after because she definitely did a lot of positive things for the UA. And here are some of their reactions when I told them she shot her husband in 1931. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> did not know that. That's definitely an interesting take on, uh, on this building. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's too crazy. No, I didn't. I wouldn't expect that. Oh my gosh. What the? <laughs> Woo! Who did she kill? The shooting was so scandalous that it tainted the possibility of a Tucson trial. Louise's lawyers successfully argued that she would never get a fair trial in Tucson due to her being such a prominent figure. So the trial was moved to Nogales, Arizona. 
Louise fully admitted to being the one to shoot him. However, what was really in question was her guilt. Was it her fault for shooting the man who had been poisoning her and mentally torturing her for years? Her lawyers tried something relatively new at the time. They argued that Louise was not guilty by reason of temporary insanity due to the fear of being killed by her husband and his lover. According to the Marshall Foundation, it was one of the first trials ever in Arizona to argue this defense. And it worked. Louise was acquitted of the charges by a jury of all men who deliberated for less than an hour. Here's what Jane McCollum had to say about the acquittal. I think it was because the judge's orders were, you may find her guilty of first-degree murder and she will be hanged, or you can find her not guilty by temporary insanity. According to the Arizona Daily Star's article from September 24, 1931, the courtroom was filled with tears from the crowd of over 100 people when the verdict was announced. The reporter said that the verdict was not a surprise. I know that Louise received several letters of support from people who felt she had not done anything wrong. Interestingly, Louise once wrote about something she said to Tom. She said, quote, Once I said a person may be innocent in the eyes of the law, but morally guilty. End quote. One thing that surprised me was the reaction from my peers when I told them that Louise had shot her husband. Many of them had a very similar reaction. I would not be so surprised because you're Vanessa and you're telling me that. If somebody else had told me that, it'd be a little more different. Um, that's pretty crazy. Uh, did he deserve it? First shock and then why? Oh my god, I'm really interested in why and when and why we named a building after her if that happened. Maybe we named it before, but okay, I'm interested. Why did she shoot her husband? If, uh, if she had a good reason for shooting him, maybe he cheated on her, maybe it was something like that, then, you know, I'm all for her doing it. You know, gotta do what you gotta do. But if, uh, if it was for reasons unannounced to that, I don't know about that. I don't know too much into this, but if, uh, if her husband was a bad guy, I, I respect the movement. So, why did she do it? The first thing to understand is that the only account for the years leading up to the murders are Louise's. Tom Marshall was dead, and Harriet Seymour appeared to live a relatively quiet life after the murder. However, she did sue Louise for slander, and the two settled out of court for $2,000, equivalent to just over $31,000 in today's money. But the reason this is important is because only one side of the story exists, and there's really no way to corroborate Louise's account. This is definitely a case of Winner Writes the History. However, if what Louise wrote is true, then her own history is a horrific one. In her writings after the murders, Louise documented years and years of mental and physical abuse, mostly at the hands of an intimate partner. She had page after page of incidents, Tom used her money to furnish what she called a love nest for him and his mistress. Both Tom and Harriet made their affair exceedingly clear, doing things like leaving perfumed handkerchiefs around for her to find, to know what they were doing. And Tom would often blame Louise for what was going on, for not doing more to stop them. She wrote, quote, 
Sometimes he blamed me for not going around the house at night and stopping what was going on. But most of the time he seemed to delight in torturing me by telling me about their illicit relations and going on every night in our own home. End quote. Tom hid two revolvers that Louise had been given as presents. According to Louise, Harriet also kept a hammer in the home, reportedly to use on the gas cook, which Louise found to be in perfect working order. More likely, the hammer was there to remind Louise that Harriet had the power. Louise wrote at some point, after Harriet left, that Tom became like a lover from the movies. This confused her at first, but she soon realized that he was trying to show her how he acted with Harriet. He stopped acting that way with Louise after a few weeks, but continued his affair with Harriet. And then, of course, there was the poisoning. To us, poisoning might not immediately sound like intimate partner violence. It sounds like a plot device in an Agatha Christie novel. But when you stop to think about it, it is a truly horrific thing to do to someone, particularly your own wife. After the poisonings, Harriet refused to bring Louise water when she was extremely thirsty, likely from the effects of the arsenic, to increase Louise's suffering. Louise soon began to feel that they had no intention of letting her live, that they wanted to kill her. A couple of things tipped her off to this. For one, in the late part of March 1931, Tom told Louise he wanted to install a gas pump in their backyard, saying it would be economical. Louise informed him that it would be cheaper to continue buying gas from the station. But Tom did it anyway. Louise found out why. He was planning on renting their house to a fraternity come September. After all, they wouldn't be living in it. He also spoke openly about his affair and how they had poisoned her food, which Louise found odd. Then Louise wrote, quote, But when the second poisoning came, I realized that he never had any intention of letting me live to tell the story of their adultery and crime. And when the second poisoning failed, I felt that my doom was sealed by some other and surer method. End quote. He even expressed thanks for all the good her parents had done him. Louise reasoned that this meant he was thankful for the money and education they gave her, because soon the whole of her business would belong to Tom. There would be no more Louise Foker Marshall to contend with. She couldn't eat. She couldn't sleep. She worried that Tom would kill her or have her locked away in an insane asylum. And she was being poisoned. Regarding her mental state in the hours before she shot Tom, Louise wrote this. Quote, it seemed more than I could stand. I felt so helpless. I could not protect myself. He could poison me when he wished. But I could do nothing about it because I did not know where the poison came from or was purchased. He could drug me, that he could spend the nights with the woman, unmolested. He could live in adultery with her for years, but was innocent in the eyes of the law because no one saw him in the act. He could attempt to inflict me with the most loathsome of all disease, syphilis. He could torture me mentally by the daily. I know I was sure he never intended for me to live to tell all that he had told me. 
Was he going to shoot me or murder me before morning? Or was I to be drugged until I was a raving maniac? It seemed more than I could stand. End quote. Before reading Louise's writings, I was unsure how I felt about having a building on campus named after a murderess. But after reading that, reading what it was like to live in that house with that man, my feelings changed. Though she was acquitted using the temporary insanity defense, it seems like she may have been suffering from something similar to battered woman syndrome. Though they didn't have the word for it in 1931, we know today that battered women syndrome is a psychological condition that develops in victims of intimate partner violence, particularly those who experience repeated long-term abuse. It manifests in feelings of learned helplessness or feeling like there is nothing they can do to stop the abuse. In many states, it is used in court as a defense to explain why a victim would kill their abuser. But to just call Louise Foker Marshall a victim is to put her into too small a box. We have to look at the active role she took in developing Tucson through real estate and philanthropic efforts if we really want to understand her legacy. The charitable foundation she set up in 1930 continues to do work in the community. We've given, I want to say approximately $30 million away over the life of her foundation. And she died in 1956. So still to today, we are helping to educate people, educate women, educate minorities, educate um, those that maybe are the least served in our community, and that helps lift people out of poverty. It's also worth noting that Louise also helped establish the University of Arizona's chapter of the Pi Beta Phi sorority. That chapter exists to this day. Pi Beta Phi at UA focuses their philanthropic efforts on literacy. This year, they collected thousands of books to distribute to low-income kids. Louise helped set up a chain of events that today has helped lead to literacy efforts with kids. While you cannot ignore the fact that Louise shot her husband, you also cannot ignore the philanthropic part of her legacy. To Jane McCollum, the shooting is only one thing that Louise did in a long life of helping others. What she did and, and created lives on. This deed was this deed, but she lived out her life. When you think of the legacy that she left in terms of the dollars for education and the asset to the community that the Main Gate Square is, I, I think you can't discount her savvy or even the Fourth Avenue um, shops are part of her legacy, which I only learned this year uh, from Fred Ronstadt. And the streetcar is in many ways her legacy. She always believed in it, and that's why the street railway was even talked about as a mode of transportation. So I, I think she was a savvy businesswoman. She was a real estate woman. And let's not forget the fact that Louise Foker Marshall was the first female professor at UA. She also served on the Arizona Board of Regents, the governing body for Arizona's public universities, sort of like the Congress of Higher Education in the state. This work in education makes her indivisibly attached to the history of women at UA, a history which is still developing. It took 15 years for UA to get its first female professor. 
Now, 134 years later, I wanted to know what's it like for other women in power here. So I talked to Alana Minkler, whose voice you may recognize from earlier in the show. Alana is a journalism student at UA, and she's also the investigative editor for the Daily Wildcat. She, along with reporter Priya Jandu, wrote an article about discrepancies in the salaries of female deans compared to male deans at the university. I wanted to know what inspired her to look into this. We've all heard about gender-based differences in pay, and it's a pretty well-known issue at UA. Here's what Alana said. I started wanting to look into gender pay discrepancies when the lawsuits started like popping up all over the news on the university. Basically, um, Patricia McCorkadale, a previous honors dean, filed a over $3 million lawsuit against the university for um, basically paying her way less than her male counterparts. And I thought that was really interesting, and I kind of kept my eye on it. And then another lawsuit happened where um, this chemistry professor, Professor Miranda, she sued the Arizona Board of Regents and the chemistry department for basically the same thing, not paying her enough and not giving her a raise, and she said it was because she's a woman. So we focused, we decided to focus the article on the um, dean salaries rather than all of faculty in general, just to kind of narrow it down. But we did that because there's two deans, there's a class action lawsuit against the university, um, and it's kind of a bigger deal. What she and Priya found was that, firstly, there are only three female deans at the University of Arizona, not counting interim deans. There are 17 male deans. On average, male deans made over $50,000 more than female deans during the 2017 to 2018 academic year. $50,000. Now, there are some possible explanations for this. For one thing, not all of these dean positions would be considered equal. Seniority plays a role. And the university is working to take things like gender and race out of the pay equation entirely. You can't always really compare it like that. I think it's also important to recognize that there's a lot of different factors that go into dean pay. Like, you know, how many years has the person been working there? What, um, what fields they're working for? There's a big difference in, like, surgery and, like humanities. And then you also have to take in other factors like if they're opening up an entirely new college, the College of Veter Veterinary Science. Um, that's a new one. And so that the dean for that is going to be paid a lot more because it's a lot more work to open up a new one. Earlier this year, the UA created a new Department of Equity, Inclusion, and Title IX, headed by the director Ron Wilson. Theoretically, this department will help prevent discrimination based on gender or any other similar factor, like the ones alleged in the lawsuits. However, Olana said that she thinks the lawsuits are what made the university take action in the first place. The university is definitely trying to like, make the dean salary and uh, faculty salary as equal as they can. It takes a lot to do that. Um, 
but they take the national average for deans and they make a target salary for them and they are trying to base the dean salary on that and not factors like race or gender. Um, but this has only really been happening in the like recent years and I don't know if it has always been trying to be equal. I think before these lawsuits, I don't think they were looking into it and I don't think that it was a big deal for them. I think they kind of got away with it. But now, you know, they're trying to make the UCAP, um, the University Career Architecture Project, which basically is making a structure, basically an infrastructure of salary for every single position and making it based on, like, the national, like, rates and trying to make it fair and take out those, like, unlegitimate factors such as gender. Whatever the case may be, since Louise's professorship over 100 years ago, women in higher education are still struggling to attain the kind of power that their male counterparts had. We've come to the end of our show now, and it's time to determine where does Louise Volker Marshall fall on the spectrum of heroes and villains? Was she a vintage murderess who shot her husband for cheating on her and got away with it? Yes. Was she a victim of horrific domestic violence that caused her to fear for her life? Yes. And was she a hero for the less fortunate, helping them to be able to achieve higher education? Yes. Louise was all of these things and more. She's a complex historical figure who, I would argue, has not been given proper attention by the university judging from how many people didn't have a clue who she was. Louise died in 1956, at the age of 92, after living most of her life after the shooting as a recluse. But even today, I think she's worth talking about more. She's undoubtedly lived a fascinating life, but she's also a perfect example of that gray area that we all live in. Nothing is black and white. Because the truth is, the world is not made up of purely good people and purely evil people. It's just made up of people. And if we're going to go out into the world every day and live with each other, we have to be willing to at least try to understand each other. All parts of each other, and every one of us. The good, the bad, and everything, and everyone, in between. From the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio, this has been Wildcat Crime. Thank you all for listening. Till next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wildcat Crime. If you liked it and want to hear more from us in the future, please make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. And follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at WildcatCrimePod. Feel free to message us with questions, comments, or episode ideas. You can also reach us by emailing VanessaO at DailyWildcat.com. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Vanessa Ontiveros. 
Special thanks to the UA Special Collections. Special thanks to Mary Feeney, Nancy Stanley, and Dan Clear for their help with research questions. Recorded in Camp Studios. Our logo was designed by Nick Trujillo. Our music was Ghost Dance by Kevin McLeod. Special thanks to everyone at Camp Student Radio. Special thanks to everyone at the Daily Wildcat. And a very special thanks to everyone who appeared on the podcast today. Jane McCollum and Alana Minkler. And another special thanks to the journalism students who appeared on today's podcast. Eddie Celaya, Olivia Jackson, Mark Lawson, Alana Minkler, Rebecca Moreno, Jackson Peters, Alexis Richardson, and Quincy Sinek. And our token film and television student, Amy Bailey. Once again, thank you for listening. This has been Wildcat Crime. Till next time.